This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. Most of you know that we are in a series entitled Go With God. And this is sermon number eight in the series. I pray that it's been a blessing to you. I know it has been to me in the preparation of it, and I believe that there are some great spiritual truths in these sermons, and I hope that you will hold dear to them and meditate upon them as we discover them and go over them. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles. First of all, we will go to the book of Exodus, but I want to ask you to first turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 10. And the title of the message today is The Realities of Godly Sorrow. It's a very interesting verse that goes hand in hand with what we're talking about in our study and our series, Go With God. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now that's a scripture to meditate upon. But I want us to go to our cornerstone in this series, the book of Exodus. And I want to read for you Exodus chapter 10 and verses 1 through 2. The scripture says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. Now that, that seems to be a mystery to us when we think about what God's trying to do and what he's actually doing. The word says, that God said he hardened Pharaoh's heart and the heart of his servants. And I think this is probably one of the explanations of why God did that. That I might show these my signs before him and that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son. And this is really important. We're going to talk about the serious importance of what we're reading right now throughout the message. What things I have wrought in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them that ye may know how that I am the Lord. I want to ask you something and see how many of you are familiar. If I were to give you a phrase, how many of you know the phrase so well that you could finish it? It's not complicated, but think about this. If I were to say to you, you can't handle what? the truth. All right, you've heard that many, many times. What if I said, may the force? All right, you got that. I know what you're watching on television. <laughs> if I were to say, 
Houston, we have a problem. Now, don't say a word here. Frankly, my dear, we're in church now. But you get the idea, right? When I thought about those types of quotes that seem to be so familiar within the lives that we live, it dawned on me when I got to this particular story, this particular phrase. We can do it the hard way or the easy way. When I thought about all of those things put together, you and, and maybe you, yourself, you have either said that to somebody or someone has said that to you. And regardless of the choice, regardless of which way that points and settles, it, it's really important how you answer that question. I mean, whoever's saying it, it really means this, that this is what we're going to do. We can do it the hard way or we can do it the easy way, but whatever you choose, this is what we're going to do. Perhaps chapter 10 here in Exodus is where that phrase was really born and how it has perpetuated down through the centuries of time. And as we look a little deeper in these plagues that we have been talking about in this series, we see that Pharaoh, he continues to stumble himself. He continues to get himself in a heap of trouble. I mean, in every instance, we can almost hear God saying to him, Pharaoh, we can do this the hard way or we can do this the easy way. Because God is determined to get his people out of Egypt. And so he reminds Moses that every single promise that he has made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob unequivocally is going to come to pass. And God says this, we can do it the hard way, we can do it the easy way, but whatever it takes, I'm going to get my people out of Egypt and into the promised land. Now, I want you to think with me just for a moment. I want to reflect that will bring us up current in this particular series, Go With God, and the message today, the realities of godly sorrow. All the way back in Genesis chapter 10, the scriptures introduce us to a man named Abram whom God would later call Abraham. They're the same person. God had told Abram to get out of his comfort zone, to get out of his securities, to get away from his family and to go into a country that he does not know and that he has not seen to a land where he would have more questions than answers. And God said, Abram, I am commanding you to do this. And when you go, God said, I will bless you 
and I will make your people to be uncountable just like the stars in heaven. And so when Abram sets out, keep in mind now, at this point, he does not have any kids. And a lot of things begin to happen on this journey. Unbelievable things. Abram was eventually called Abraham by God. Abraham eventually had a son whose name was Isaac. Isaac had a son whose name was Jacob. Jacob had a son whose name was Joseph. And if you're familiar with these series of events thus far, you know that Joseph had a few brothers who despised him greatly. Ultimately, these brothers got together and they conspired against him. They threw him into a pit and then they sat down to have lunch and they could see Joseph down there perhaps crying, asking, why have you guys done this to me? They look over the horizon and they see a caravan approaching, heading to Egypt. And the brothers got together and they began to conspire and they decided Rather than killing Joseph, we're going to profit off of him. We're going to sell him into slavery. In other words, they were going to human traffic him. And now Joseph finds himself in prison for several years for a crime he did not commit. As soon as he landed himself in a pit, he found himself in a prison and it wasn't no time before he found himself in the palace. One of his main jobs was to help Egypt get through the famine. And in that particular time, his deceitful brother showed up seeking help and refuge, not recognizing him at first. And to speed this story up a little bit, I think most of you may be familiar with what we're talking about. Joseph ends up forgiving his brothers and he blesses them. And he allows them to settle in this little place called Goshen. Now it's in this place, Goshen, that the people began to multiply in plenteous ways. The numbers now are close to 2 million people. Now our story. Pharaoh looks over the land and he sees this incredible host of people and he sees a way that he can profit off of them. He sees them as free labor. He sees it as a huge reinforcement to the Egyptian economy. And so now the story goes like this. After he has put these millions of people into slavery, God speaks to Moses. He said, okay, now I've heard their cry. They're calling for deliverance. I'm sending you, Moses. I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And so Moses does that one time after another. He comes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, this has all got to stop. God said, let my people go. Pharaoh continuously says no. And you would think right now that because after all of these plagues thus far, they are pounding upon Egypt and the Egyptian economy. And Egypt right now, as a result of all of these plagues, they're, they're barely on life support. 
You would think that at this point, as Pharaoh looks at his people, his countrymen, his country where he lives, you would think by now Pharaoh would say, okay, this has to stop. You're right. We've had enough. Now think about it. I'm talking about after the boils, after the water turned to blood, after all of the frogs, after all of the pestilence, after all the hail and the flies, and every situation, things have become apocalyptic. And still, after all of these things, Pharaoh is still saying no. Now keep in mind, and we talked a little bit about this the other Sunday, after the plague of the frogs, God made a division among the people where the Israelites were not affected by the plagues. In this whole story, God is showing up in incredible ways and he's showing both the Hebrews and the Egyptians exactly who he is. He is the great I am. He is the Lord God Almighty, and there is none other but him. He is Elohim, El Shaddai, Jehovah Jireh, Adonai. And he is doing everything to show the Hebrews and the Egyptians exactly who he is and what he is capable of doing. But here's the interesting thing. He is also doing this because he wants the people in the generations to come to know exactly who he is as well. This is important. This is where it lands on you and me today. God wants to have this encounter with us so that we can pass down from one generation to another from this day as in the days gone by, from this day forward until the Lord comes, that God has a plan, that God has a purpose. He wants us to teach those coming behind us who he is, what he has done. This week I was watching something on the internet and this guy was walking around a local store. It had the appearance of Walmart or some, some big place like that. And he had a lot of money in his hand, $20 bills, and he was walking up to individuals in the store and he was asking two questions. He, he'd walk up to this person and said, ma'am, if you can tell me who Jesus Christ is, I will give you $20. And he held out his hand. When I watched this, because there were two questions, the second question was, do you know for sure that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life? There are two questions. And he was doing it almost in two segments. The first question, do you know if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life? And I noticed this, that the people that he, were, he was interviewing was predominantly elderly people. The first guy that he asked that question do you know if your name is written down in the book of life? He didn't want to talk to him. Threw his hands up, kept walking. He got to another lady and she gave him a real awful look and she kept on walking. When, when he got to the question of, do you know who Jesus Christ is? I, I will give you $20 if you can tell me. And he held it out. I'll give you $20 if you can tell me who Jesus Christ is. 
This guy throws up his hands and he says, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. He walked down the aisle just a little bit and there was an elderly lady pushing a basket. He said, I'll give you $20 if you can tell me who Jesus Christ is. And she said, you ought not to be doing that in here. And I'm telling you, one after another got angry, gave a disgusting look, would not answer, could not answer. And I'm thinking, oh, dear God in heaven, because he was not addressing little children. He was talking to people who had some serious age to them. And the truth of the matter is this, if a person does not trust Jesus as their savior, as a child, as a teenager in their young adult years, it is very difficult to win them to Christ in their older years. I'm not saying they cannot be saved. Thank God elderly people can be saved every single day. I've led elderly people to the Lord on their deathbed. But I'm telling you, the older we get, the more difficult it becomes because we get so set in our ways, we don't open our hearts as freely. You know, the word says, except we have childlike faith. When a child is presented the gospel and they understand there's a heaven and there's a hell and there's right and wrong and there's sin that separates us, they don't go through some kind of big song and dance in a big way to defend it. Man, they don't want to die and go to hell. That's what happened to me. When I was five years old, I came to realize that if I didn't accept Jesus as my savior, I was going to die and go to hell. And my mother sitting in the service today and we knelt by a bed and, and I called on the Lord Jesus to come into my heart. Now I will tell you, I didn't understand it all then, but what I knew is this, I did not want to die and go to hell. These people were elderly. Finally, it seemed like he got to the last one. And he says, ma'am, I will give you $20 if you can tell me who Jesus Christ is. And she said, he is the son of God. And he gave her $20. And he said, can you tell me one thing that he did? And she said, he died on the cross. Now, I will tell you, as I watched this whole thing unfold, my thought was, this, this world, and let me single it out, this country is in such a blind state right now that I'm convinced that there are some people who call themselves Christians but are too ashamed to admit it. They... They don't want people to think or people to know that they are one of them. Oh, they've been to church and they, they know the gospel. Maybe, maybe they said a little prayer in a corner somewhere. I don't know. But I'm telling you, friend, today, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. We have got to get to the place as the body of Christ I'm not just talking about Buford Road, but as the body of Christ, we're, we're not ashamed. If people were to say, I'll give you 20 bucks, you say, you can keep your 20 bucks. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep me against that day. 
We need to have a testimony and be open about it. And we need to lift our voice and we need to proclaim it. You don't need to run and hide. Don't do that in the store. This is not appropriate. Listen, that's the mindset of the world. And I believe there are many, many people in the church, the body of Jesus Christ, who are playing that game. God help us. These are the last days. And we need to step up and we need to let our voice be known and let it be heard. And so the thing that I want you to understand is that none of these plagues that God was bringing on Egypt, they weren't experiments. I mean, God was not up in heaven saying, well, well, guys, if this don't work, let's try this. And, and if he still won't do it, we can, we can bring it even harder. Let's do this. It, none of this was an experiment. I mean, we can never look at the stories if God is in a standoff position with Pharaoh. Sometimes parents have a weak spot in their parenting skills, and they will often say this to their misbehaving child. Don't do that. And then it's like falling on deaf ears. They say, no, don't do that. And then when it continues to happen, they say, didn't, didn't I tell you not to do that? One. They do it again. Two. Now you think about that. God's, this is not an experiment and God's not going one. Two. And listen, you, you need to have enough, enough Bible in you, God in you. If your if your children now listen, if they're going to act like morons, jack them up. <laughs> what in the world is time out? Oh man, I can't get started on that today. God's taking His righteous time with this so that everybody will clearly know who he is, what he's capable of. He especially wants everyone to know that he's fully dedicated to his word and to his people. And God wants his greatness and omnipotence passed down to further generations. And that's what this is all about. Now, there's an element to the story that we see God prolonging these events to highly emphasize his omnipotence and his greatness. And so I'd like for you to take notice of these spiritual truths this morning. Number one, following the bulletin, and that is this. God is deeply concerned that we see ourselves within the story. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6, in these words, which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart. So God is not only wanting people to understand who he is and what he is, he wants us to remember his patience, his greatness, his omnipotence. Yes, indeed. But he also wants his people to repeatedly tell the story of who he is to one generation to another. And we can see God's declaration of that in Joshua chapter 4, verse number 5. Get it on the screen. And Joshua said unto them, pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of these tribes of the children of Israel. 
And the people came out of Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which, which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel saying, when your children shall ask their fathers in time to come saying, what mean these stones? Got a fly over here. I guess, I don't know. I guess it was a spider. I don't know. I don't like either one of them though. And he, verse 21, and spake unto the children of Israel saying, when your children shall ask their fathers in time to come say, what mean these stones? Then you shall let your children know saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land for the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we were gone over. And look at this, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord that is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. Now, there is another passage that I want to give you real quick. It's found in Psalms chapter 78 because the psalmist said, tell the stories, even the dark days, as well as the days of blessing. In Psalms chapter 78, verse number one, the word says, give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. And so God is very concerned about this thing. I want Pharaoh and I want Egypt and I want the Hebrews to know who I am and what I'm capable of. And I not only want them to know, but he said, I want what I'm doing and who I am known to other generations, the people coming behind. I want everyone to know, never forget. He said these things because I want them to know me in a personable way. He said, I want them to have faith in me. In Psalm 78, 7, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And so God wants us to know the very same thing. This is not just a Bible story that happened many years ago. This is applicable for right now. All of us have had and will have plenty of dark days in our life. Days we wish, just like this past week where it was full of rain. All of us wanted to see the sunshine again. All of us have dark days and all of us want to see bright and sunny days. But in spite of everything, whatever it may be doing, God wants us to have faith in him. But I want you to look at this. When he talks about their faith and their hope, and I say this to all of the parents in here especially, and those of you that have grandchildren within your reach, and those of you that have an influence on somebody in your house, your neighbor, your coworker. And let me explain it this way. And let me use my children who I know have made personal testimonies that they have given their heart to Christ. So I want to speak generically now across the board 
to everyone, probably everybody in here, and those of you that are watching by internet, if you have children, let's start with that. Probably, I would say, I would hope that I'm right, that the number one thing that you want for your children is to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they know Jesus Christ is their personal savior. To me, there's nothing more important than to know that your household is saved, born again. But the bottom line is this, no matter how much I pray for them to be saved, and no matter how much I want them to be saved, the bottom line is this, there has to come a place, a point in time when they want it, when they receive it, because I cannot save them. My prayers cannot save them. They have to come to a place where they realize like I realized when I was a child, or at some point in their life that Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of God. He's the only way to heaven. There is no redemption. There is no eternal life with him in heaven unless they trust him as their personal savior. I cannot save anybody, nor can you. And so we have to tell the story so that others coming behind us, listen, they have to trust him because they are going to be dependent on him just as much as I'm dependent on him. They have to exercise faith just like I do. And the truth of the matter is this. I believe if you have an unsaved family member, a coworker that you have a great friendship with, some family member, if you have a bond with somebody that's just inseparable, listen, and you know Christ, probably the greatest thing that you desire in your heart for that person without Christ is that they would know him, that they would be saved, that they would trust him, Every single person must come to Christ themselves. They have to do that. Now, if you go back to verse number seven in our, in our study, we would keep his commandments. God is saying this, that your view and that your children's view of God, this is what, this is what God is saying to the, to this whole Egyptian nightmare. He is saying, listen, I know you have been in slavery for 400 years. I, I know that. But what's more important is that you know me and that your children know me. He is saying that you knowing me is more important than you being in 400 years of Egyptian captivity. And so let this sink in today, if you will, just for a moment. God said, let his people go. Pharaoh said, no. God let them endure slavery for 400 years. Why? So that they would love him and trust him and obey him. That's what mattered to God. But the question is, and, and let me personalize this for a moment this morning. How, how important is that to you? To know him to trust him. I mean, is it important to you to have a passionate relationship with him? Is your children's relationship with God more important to you than the relationships that they have with the world? Number two this morning, God is deeply concerned that we have a relationship with him 
And let me ask this question. If you could be honest with yourself, because God knows all things, but if you could be honest with yourself, what would you say is your single most highest hurdle with your relationship with God? What, what is the thing that you struggle with the most with him? And be honest with your inner spirit this morning. I mean, is it some kind of unconfessed sin? Is it the lack of faith? Is it willful disobedience? Is it unforgiveness? Is it selfishness? Is it lust? Is it sowing discord? I mean, when you think about what your hurdle is, keeping you from having that personal, passionate relationship with God, if you can identify it, are you willing to tear it down? And it may mean making massive life-altering decisions for you and your family. But is it worth it? Regardless of what it is, listen carefully. Thank God for 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I ask the question, is your family worth it? Number three, God is deeply concerned that we do not underestimate the destructive power of pride and rebellion. In Exodus 10, look at these scriptures with me. I want to quickly read verses 3 through 7. As Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Else, if thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into the coast, and they shall cover the face of the earth that one cannot see the earth. Can you imagine? Now, he's already been through this thing with the frogs. Now God's saying, you keep this mess up, buddy. He said, you ain't seen nothing yet. And he was calling in the locusts. That they, that they couldn't see a clear place in front of them. Look at this. They shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field, and they shall fill thy houses and thy houses and all of thy servants and the houses of the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor thy father's fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth until this day. And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? Pharaoh's servants are saying to him, Sir, there's absolutely nothing left. Let these people go. We cannot endure this. Moses, again, he, he goes to Pharaoh and he says, how long is it going to be before you humble yourself before Jehovah? And I, I don't want you to forget this spiritual truth, and that is this. God will always lift up the humble, but he will always resist the proud. I don't know about you. You probably have read this story many, many times. Have you ever wondered, reading this story, how this story would have turned out had it gone the other way? You remember 
We can do this the hard way or the easy way. Have you ever read the story wondering, what if, just what if, hypothetically, what if Pharaoh chose to do it the easy way? If it was the other way, I mean, I wonder what would have happened if Moses and Aaron went to the court of Pharaoh and said, uh, sir, I know this sounds ridiculous, but Jehovah, Yahweh, he is demanding that you let his people go. And suppose Pharaoh said, you know, doesn't make any economical sense. When I look at it, I can see the destruction of the Egyptian economy. But the bottom line, Moses and Aaron, I, I, I just do not want to go to war with Jehovah. And so please get these people out of here. Can you imagine how the story might have had a different outcome if that had happened? I mean, I wonder how better things would have been for Egypt if Pharaoh had just said, okay, from the very beginning, I wonder how prosperous God could have made Egypt. We'll never know the answer to that, obviously. But what we definitely know is this, that God lifts up the humble and he resists the proud. That's what we know. James 4, 6, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. None of us in this auditorium, none of us watching by internet today have to be schooled on pride. All of us know what it is. And we all know, I believe anyway, I believe we all know how to crucify pride. I think, though the irony of this is that if we do not crucify it, if we do not put it in chains, it will ultimately put us in chains. In Psalms 131 verse 1, the word says this, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. And this is one of the essences of true humbleness. And never forget that God has seen our lives from eternity past to where we are now and, and what the future holds. You and I, we can only see this moment where we are right now. Many times I think we just need to step back and say, God, I do not know what I'm doing. You see, if we say that to God, we are automatically removing pride out of our life. If we were to step back in a dark day, perilous times, troubles all around us, we're, we're at our wits end, we don't know what to do. If we just step back from that problem and that situation and say, God, I do not know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I don't know why I said what I did. I don't know why I made the choice that I did, but here is my prayer. Dear God in heaven, take all of my wrong away and make things right. If we were to pray something like that, get off of the pedestal and say, God, here am I. Take whatever's wrong and make it right. You can be assured of this. God will always extend help and grace to the humble. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse number 14, I, I may be sharing the scripture on the 4th of July. My heart's churning about that sermon right now. 
the days and times which we live right now, folks, I'll tell you what, Christianity is under attack. Uh, God's people is being enslaved by the bondages and the sin and the degradation and the debauchery of this world. I'm telling you right now, Jesus is on his way back. We need to get ready for this. The word as it was spoken then still applies now. If my people will humble, uh, to call by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. I don't know about you, but recently, I saw in the news on a certain station that I watched where Joe Biden had people at the White House, they were half naked walking around the, the, the place at the White House. I'm saying, God have mercy. What about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson? What about all the Patrick Henrys and people that gave their life's blood to see some kind of shame and sickness like that going on in the White House of America? God help us. Oh, God help us. And no true born again believer can be quiet about that stuff. We cannot, listen, that's, that's, that's something that they want to throw down our throats and make us deal with it. It is wrong. And I'm telling you this, if you call yourself a Christian and go along with this world system and what's happening right now, you cannot say you believe this book. You cannot do it. This word tells us how to live. It tells us what to believe. It tells us how to live. It tells us how to die. Oh, I'm waiting for July the 4th. <laughs> Help me there, brother. I'm preaching out of my dad's Bible this morning. Thank you. I appreciate that. I that's a pile of stuff he had in there. and I don't know what pages they were on, but it don't matter now. I'm telling you what, I, every red-blooded American, we need to get to the place where we love God, we're not ashamed of God, where we speak the truth, where we lift him up. And when people cross these crazy, insane lines, listen carefully, we, we, we need to make a difference. We need to do it. Now, when we are determined to shut the gates on pride, heaven will swing wide open its love and kindness. So I want you to look at the next point this morning. I want our musicians to come forward. I want to speed this sermon up a little bit. I don't have time to preach it in its whole, whole context, and its whole content. The last point, I want you to look at it. God is deeply concerned that we know that there is a big difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. I've already read the scripture once. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Godly sorrow, listen now, is something that molds us and shapes us. Something else. Godly sorrow, by the way, is a little scary. If, that, if that's a word that you can identify with, because it says this. When we get to the place where we're going to have legitimate godly sorrow, we're repentant and contrite, and we say, God, and this is scary, God, whatever you want, 
there's an old song, and it scares me every time. We recorded a song a few years ago, the Virginia Boys. It was called King Jesus. Adam was telling me a year or two ago, he said, because all of our all of our music tracks are recorded in Nashville most of the time, and he was saying, when, when we got ready to lay that song down, was it the drummer or the guitar player? Scared to death of that song. That scared to death of that song, King Jesus, who was drummer. He said, every time I heard that song when I was a child, he said, it scared the living daylights out of me. He said, I've never liked that song. He said, now you bringing it in here and I got to play it on an album. But there's a song that scares me to death. To sing and mean. It says, whatever it takes to draw closer to you, Lord. That's what I'm willing to do. Man, if we don't mean that, take my houses, take my lands. If that's what it takes to draw closer to you. Danny brought out a scripture in Sunday school today, his life's verse, though he slay me, I will trust. That's a powerful verse. If we step back and say, God, whatever you want, whatever you require, I want to totally submit myself. Listen now, worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow, this is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. When you're sincere and you, and you bow before his holiness and say, God, whatever you want, listen, that's godly sorrow. But worldly sorrow is when we step back and say, God, I'll do this, but if you do that and and you work this out and that changes. When you start working sorry into all of these strings attached, that's not godly sorrow. Pharaoh, he loved to sin too much and all he wants now when he's, when he's talking to Moses, what may seem to be in a favorable way, all he wants is for this all the consequences to be over. That's all he wants. And I want you to learn this spiritual truth. That if we have stipulations on godly sorrow, it's not godly sorrow. And let me say, there is a reason. There is a reason why people find themselves in the same stuck place all of the time. There's a reason for that. But when you bring whatever it is to the Lord and say, here it is, God, and then say this, talk about faith, listen to this. When you bring whatever it is to God and say, here it is, God, I don't know how this is going to play out, but right now my heart completely belongs to you. And whatever happens as a result, Whatever the consequences may be, I'm going to trust you. I love you too much to go back. That's godly sorrow.
God said to Pharaoh, we can do it the hard way. We can do it the easy way. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.